I welcome into the studio Susie Grogan. Good morning to you, Susie. Good morning, Eddie, and welcome to Talking Books. Now, I'm just going to say a little piece of my own here. I, I, on this programme, we are always talking about the power of language and how words can affect us. And I just wanted to say on what really is a morning after the most hideous day that we should all be very careful of the language we use. None of us know exactly what the impact of that language will be on other people and how they interpret it. And the way we illustrate our point is just as important. And today, well, you can't really say anything other than, um, you know, rest in peace um, to the poor MP who was um, murdered yesterday. Um, But my message would be to the media and to everybody to calm down, look at your language and take responsibility for the sorts of things you're saying and doing um, in this month and probably on for another well, for goodness knows how long. But anyway, on to something else. And I'm going to welcome to Talking Books uh, an author who takes us way back into history. Um, I'm focusing on a genre I've rarely covered on the show. I'm not sure why. Um, maybe local authors are more romantically inclined or inclined to criminal dealings, um, poetry or even erotica. Um, But this week, we've got a really meaty historical novel um, inspired by actual events. Um, It's really well-researched and written with, I think, real passion. 1066, What Fates Impose, is written by Glyn, known as G.K. Holloway, who joins me in the studio. Thank you for coming in, Glyn. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So what inspired you to write a book about that period in history? Because we think we sort of know, but clearly Mm. hardly know anything. I hardly knew anything either until quite a few years ago now. My wife bought me uh, a book as a Christmas present, and it was called Harold, The Last Anglo-Saxon King. And like most people, I know about the arrow in the eye and the Battle of Hastings. And that was more or less it. Uh, Anyway, I started uh, reading this book, and I just found it um, absolutely fascinating. I was completely absorbed by by the book, by the... um, various families in the uh, in the court in England at the time and um, the crisis that brought on the Norman invasion um, so I just ended up buying more and more books and reading it and I thought this this is just the most fascinating period of history that I can think of um, more so than the Tudors I'm sure that'll offend some people but but I think it is and it all culminates in in one battle uh, in 1066 that completely change the direction of, of English history. Things are happening now that would never have happened if we'd have been, uh, if we'd have managed to uh, fight off uh, William. I think um, we'd have been in a situation where definitely the language would be very different. But I think we'd be far more like um, Scandinavia. And I think we are mm. a kind of a, a secret closet Scandinavian country. And that's, mm. you know, we changed direction because of 1066. Yes, and I mean, it's a fascinating period that I said to you just before the show that all I really knew about it was from the Bayeux Tapestry and my Ladybird book of Kings Mm -hmm. and Queens. And yet at the time, there were real issues about succession and things that we don't even think about now in relation Mm. to our royal family. It was a it was a sort of like a key political moment, wasn't it? It was. It was because um, King Edward, known as Edward the Confessor by everyone nowadays, refused to produce an heir. And that was a prime function of a king is to mm. produce another king mm. so that the dynasty can go on and the stability in the country. And for whatever reason, and nobody really knows why, he decided not to do that. 
Um, it was a conscious decision, was it? It, just, it was. It just wasn't one it that was. just didn't happen for him. He hated the man who um, <clears throat> who was his father-in-law. That was uh, Earl Godwin of Wessex. Oh, right. mm-hmm. He married uh, Godwin's daughter. Um, and it was obviously a, a you know, political arrangement that really mm-hmm. suited Godwin. And about the only way thing that, that Edward could do was not produce a child. It's kind of passive aggression, really, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. Um, so when uh, 1066 turned up uh, and Edward died, there was, there was a successor, and that was to his, um, his half-brother, Edmund Ironside. But he was only probably 15, maybe 16 at the time. Um, England was under threat from Norway and Normandy, and they needed uh, a proven warrior general mm-hmm. to wear the crown. And Harold Goodwin's son, who had been subregulus, was the obvious choice. Mm. And to become king in England at that time, you had to be of royal blood, hopefully, uh, and um, be elected by the Witan, the mm-hmm. rudimentary parliament, really. Uh, and no king could promise the English crown to anyone else, which is what William the Conqueror said Edward did. But... That's mm. neither here nor there. So Harold was legitimately made king, and mm. um, William took umbrage. <laughs> well, it was, it's quite a brave thing to take on the role of king in, in those days, wasn't it? I mean, when you say a, a king might be 15 or 16, I mean, life expectancy wasn't incredibly high, and there were very few. I don't know, how old was Edward the Confessor? Was He was quite elderly, wasn't he? Was he was about 60. Yes. I, if, it's true that the, the life expectancy wasn't particularly high, but if, if you were an aristocrat... Mm. And you made it past the age of seven. Right. And particularly if there weren't any wars, there was a good chance you'd make it into your 60s right. and maybe even your 70s. Right. Yes, because that's an idea that we have of the time, didn't we? Mm. I mean, I turn on Expert Eye, the book seems really well researched. Did you have to spend a long time on the history such as it is? Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I did. I, I read every book that I could get my hands on and um, I built the story around the facts most of the characters in the book, when I say most, I mean about 90, 95% of them, were real people mm. in those places, uh, at, in those times. One or two things have been shifted around a little bit, mm-hmm. um, just for, for, for reasons of, of plot line, just to mm-hmm. keep the story flowing. But other than that, most of what I said happened, happened. And to the people, mm. the things happened to. Mm. I mean, it's... Uh, it's a book that I learnt quite a lot from. I mean, you feel like you've learnt it. I mean, you can never be sure when you're reading fiction, obviously. It's like mm. watching a, one of these drama documentaries on the television. You, you begin to lose sight of what's real mm. and what's fiction. Mm. But um, as you say, there wasn't a, an awful lot of direct history. So how did you approach fictionalising that? Did that give you a lot of freedom to, to, to fictionalise it? It gives you freedom and it pins you down as well. Um, the obvious key dates are the Battle of Hastings, Stamford Bridge, um, when the, um, the English invaded Wales in 1063. It's, it, they're all there. They've got to happen. And, and the people involved need to be depicted in the story. So you basically build in links between one event and another. And you need to keep the characters consistent really otherwise they just start behaving oddly and, mm. and we don't want that you know, mm. unless they're supposed to be that way and uh, it's just developing the, the characters as they go along it, reading the book you get the history 
And it's just... What works for me is imagining the scene, and I can do this quite easily because I'm just a natural daydreamer. So I can daydream <laughs> my way. My wife's got a lot to say about this. You know, it's kind of, where are you now? Yes. 1066. Yes. And I'm so... Oh, oh, oh. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I would... Do the research on, on a particular event, say Harold going over to Normandy in 1064, yeah. and think about what it would be like, and then basically write about the picture that I saw in my head when I was uh, imagining it all. Yes. And that's the way I did it. Yes. Not very technical, but, you know, it seems to work. Were you a reader of historical fiction before you started writing it? Not especially. I've uh, I've read uh, some historical fiction, but most of what I read is either straightforward history, somebody's mm-hmm. memoirs say, or straightforward literary fiction. Mm-hmm. So that's that's where I, I've gone. And I, I thought, as I started writing the book, I just thought, you know, am I, am I biting off too much here? And I was tempted to go and read lots of other historical fiction books. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, if I do that, I might just end in, end up writing like. Bernard Cornwell or somebody, and yes. everybody say, oh, yeah, this is quite a good book, you know, he's, he's trying to be Bernard Cornwell, but, you know. And I thought, no, you can, you can only ever be second best if you write like someone else. Yes, I so expect he wrote like somebody else before him, though. It's interesting how these mm, things happen, isn't it? Mm, yeah, yeah, so you wanted to find your own voice, yeah. really. And it took, it took a bit of finding as well with this book in particular. Yes. Well, I mean, it's a, it looks like a longer book than it is somehow I don't know if one I, I think I feel daunted by historical fiction I, I, I'm often daunted by historical fiction so don't read an awful lot of it but it's very pacey how did you keep did you are you one of those people who plots with yellow sticky notes and things to make sure they've got everything in the right place at the right time I did bullet points oh, right. so I, 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 I wrote the chapters out and I knew what I wanted to happen and where uh, and then as I started reading through, I thought that this needs something. There's, there's, there's a, a two-year jump at one point because nobody... No, you look as though you didn't notice that. No, I just, no, 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 no I, sorry, I'm I, just concentrating I, on what you're saying. I'm I sorry, just, stop I my just, natural look. I just wrote two years later. Oh, right. Because, because there was nothing worthy of comment for two years. Not a lot was happening. Um, but what I found with this was, um, and it must be the particular era, it, it kind of writes itself... In as far as you've got lots of fairly interesting characters. I didn't think the first part of the book was particularly pacey because I was, I was trying to kind of marshal all the characters and all the events and describe the situation that, that led up mm. to the Battle of Hastings. And I thought it was a bit slow. But there's Harold's got a brother called Sven who was... I, mean, I, I think he was seriously disturbed. I mean, I think you'd probably call him a psychopath these days. And he was very violent. Mm. Um, and it wasn't just as though he was violent with words. This is this is the one who kidnapped the uh, mm. the abbess, um, and uh, so I kind of concentrated on him because he could he could bring a kind of um, disturb yes, and otherwise there's an undercurrent. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Mm. The, the scenery. And I just thought this is this is just brilliant. I couldn't understand why everybody didn't write this story <laughs> because it's in a way it's very easy to do because there's so many interesting characters, mm. so many interesting things going on. Mm. You know, you, you you probably have a bit of difficulty going wrong, really. I think I'm, I'm sure you, there's... Um, no, I'm sure <laughs> lots of people go very wrong. <laughs> I think that's... I mean, I have tried my hand at, at fictionalising the story that inspired me to write my book, Shell Shop Britain. 
and I think I've written the required number of words but I'm absolutely certain that it's all in the wrong place and that it's going to be a serious editing job in order to make sure that everything happens in the right place at the right time did you you say bullet points is that what you literally do do you almost write around the bullet points to make sure that nothing shifts out of place well my my bullet points were um were chapter headings and oh, that, right. that's how I did it mm. um but and I'd have numbered the uh, the pages originally because I thought, well, that'll be easy to move around. And then I decided, oh, I need to shift this chapter two chapters further on down mm-hmm. the book and pull something back. And so, so the the uh, that's why there's no chapter numbers. Right. <laughs> it's just titles. Right. And uh, originally there were no page numbers either, so the manuscript was blank with the numbers and just had had the chapter oh, headings. Gosh, that's how I did it. Gosh, but you don't were... want to drop that on the floor, do you? <laughs> <laughs> But I nearly did that. I went to, we got a new computer and uh, I took the uh, the floppy disk into work and put it in and, mm. and uh, pressed the button. And all I got was the framework for the book with no text. Nothing was there. The whole thing had just disappeared. Oh, no. I know. I got it sorted, though. Thank heavens. That, I, I don't know what I'd have done if I'd have lost that because I was 100,000 words into it at the time. Yes. How many words is it in total? Now, it's... Um, one hundred and fifty-four thousand, yeah. something like that. Yeah. It yeah. was originally two hundred and ninety-seven thousand. I know. Runs. I sent it to an editor, and he said, "This is way too long, uh, and you're trying to do too much." And I said, "Okay." So, so uh, the sequel yeah. is is what was originally part of the first book. Oh, right. And then uh, I sent it back at two hundred thousand words and said, "What do you think of this?" And the editor said, "It's very good, but why do you keep?" Repeating things and mm. why, and I thought, oh, oh, you you get to the point where you really do need somebody else to look because you, you can't do. see the mistakes, mm. you can't see the repetitions, you can't see the unnecessary scenes. Um, so it got clipped down from two hundred thousand to one hundred and fifty-four or whatever it is. Yes, and it's much tighter now than it was. I mean, I do a bit of editing and proofreading as well, and sometimes I've sent the manuscript back to the publisher and just said, I don't think they realise how many times they've repeated the same facts. And sometimes with history, that's quite easy to do, actually. Mm. Um, But it sticks out like a sore thumb to the reader, whereas you're saying, actually, it's almost impossible to see. I would agree with that. Yeah. You're doing it. Ed is a great one for doing this. <laughs> he comes in with this very intelligent question. Well, no, I'm just going to look at the book, actually, because yeah, uh, I quite oh, like I quite liked historical work, you know, when I was growing up, you know. Oh, I think, yes, I was going to ask. Stuff about the Saracens and all that sort of thing, mm. and, and well, I was Crusades gonna, and all that. I was going to ask about that. Who have you found your audience to be? Because I've... I don't like stereotyping books, but there are certain genres that are more appealing to a certain kind of audience. Have you found you've got a, a broad audience, or is it fairly specific? It's it's got various components. There's the um, the people who like um, Viking, Anglo-Saxon things, mm. um, so they'll um, they'll read uh, Justin Hill, Bernard Cornwell's mm. the obvious one. Mm. Um, and they like fictionalised history. Some people aren't really too bothered about the historical facts. They just want a good story set in, yeah. in a particular time. Mm. And other people will write up to you and say, 
you do know it was a Tuesday when that boat was launched <laughs> and not a Wednesday. Yes, and it was uh, raining. Yeah, exactly, you know, really, you know. Or, or the, worst, the worst is um, there, uh, there were some historical inaccuracies, but they don't say which ones. So you can't say, well, what, where? Because yes. it, it might not be inaccurate at all. Then again, it might, but I don't know which one it was. It's... So all the lovers of, of, of the Viking uh, and, and Game of Thrones kind mm. of books, they really like it. Uh, and quite a few of those uh, are blokes, 70, 80% of the Viking fans. Then the people who like history that's, um, that's historical fiction that's ha- accurate, mm. and they'll read anything as long as they think they can learn something. Yeah. And they're, they're the people who like Sharon Penman. And, uh, I've never read any. All right, she's well. She's written some wonderful books. Oh right, <laughs> um, about the Plantagenets, mate. Oh right, in, yeah. You know, sort of post ten sixty six, and there's the Anglo-Saxon fans, and and um, there tend to be more women in in that audience. And then there's there's particular people who are interested. I've, I've met all sorts of people because I, I go to things like the Abbots Bromley Horn Dance mm. every year, and that's um, a sight to behold. <laughs> <laughs> where people carry uh, antlers a- around the village of Abbots Bromley and then they go out into the country and come back and they come back and they're entitled to a f- free drink in every pub that oh, they go really? to. Yeah, there's quite a lot of pubs in Abbots Bromley. I was going to say, it's a great incentive. So, so, so by about eight o'clock, you know, in, and when they've been at it all day and they've, they've been into all the pubs, they're a little bit unsteady as, as they're doing the horn dance. Mm. But it's great. They get a terrific audience. But people who like that come up and have a chat. Mm. Uh, and there's people of... Um, well, they're, they're really interested in the bulk of them. They're, lots of pagans mm. and yeah. lots of experts on, on uh, the Norman Conquest. They're interested. Yeah, I would thought it, it would really appeal to people who are well into reenactments and that sort yeah. of thing isn't it you know so uh, of which you know i've been to a few myself um, just as a audience you know, but, uh, yeah i've uh, been to the battle of hastings they usually have a few authors down there and uh, i was lucky enough to get up to stamford bridge last year and that's great to meet people who, who are interested in, in in history and it's also great for research because that was the first time i've ever really seen people use these two handed axes mm. that they used to use in battle and it's you know if you use your imagination a bit seeing people attack each other with swords and spears mm. it's it's you know you, you can imagine being in, in in the shield wall there and thinking oh mm. you know this, mm. this isn't going to be an easy day but those axes because yeah. they flail them around and you know ha- having a couple of pound of sharpened steel coming down on your head you know yes you get Quite a headache. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the the final battle the, um, that uh, I admit that I made myself read last night, it's quite gory in places. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, as a as a reader, I'm I'm not I don't watch things like Games of Th- Game of Thrones and those because I'm I'm usually got my face behind a cushion or something, or I feel so sorry for someone. Like I, by the end of the book, I wanted you to have changed the ending so yeah. that everything. <laughs> turned out okay for Harold you know you mm. just think to yourself well they do do this on the television mm. sometimes they change the endings and there is I think that's a good part of the book is that you you've you've engaged our sympathies um but it is a proper reenactment of the battle it goes on for a mm. long time doesn't it that final yeah. battle scene the average length of a battle in those times was an hour to two hours at most mm. Um, so that's probably what William the Conqueror was expecting when he, when he, he went up onto Senelac Ridge. Mm. And they were actually starting to cook lunch 
<laughs> when, when you know, as soon, soon as they, they were engaging in battle, all, all the cooks were there, mm. um, setting up the barbecues and, and, and what have you. And you can see it on the Bay of Tapestry. They're there with kebabs. Mm. And people, have, they, they got the idea because they, they, Normans used to fight in Sicily. Uh, oh, right. And that's where they got the idea of kebabs and we can have a nice lunch now after the battle. Because yeah. you work up an appetite if you've yeah, been slaughtering people <laughs> all yes, morning. Yes. Um, and they did actually go and have lunch and it took about two hours. Mm-hmm. Um, while I sat around working out what they were going to do. Mm-hmm. So to still be there by lunchtime, it's obviously they're in deadlock. Uh, and then they start fighting again at two, mm-hmm. and it went on till around about five o'clock. So it's an extraordinary long time. And what I wanted to do with, 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 the, with the Portrait of the Battle is, is take you there. You can see it. I mean, it's going to be pretty gruesome in places yes, but I wanted people to see just what a close run thing it was yes you know it's to the point where if it had rained on a day yeah we'd have probably won because the horses would have got bogged down in the mud and they mm. wouldn't have been able to charge or they'd have been exhausted far sooner than they were mm. um it can all rest on one decision can't it yeah. literally but there were so many of those all along yeah. all, all through 1066 where things could have gone in a different direction. You know, if Harold hadn't actually commanded the army and he'd sent his brothers down there, then the next day it could have led, you know, a, a fresh army because the, the Northern Earls came down. Yes. And the last thing William would have expected was a fresh army to come down on him and, um, you know, engage him in battle. And they would they would have been driven away. And you could, lots and lots of times that kind of thing happens. It's a bit frustrating if your sympathies are with the Saxons. Yeah. <laughs> I got a little bit distracted by the... I'm not uh, surprised. Well done for just carrying <laughs> on. That was incredibly professional. <laughs> I'm sitting here panicking, hoping it will stop. Now, uh, listeners just like to know about people's route to publication, really, because mm-hmm. you um, published this first as an e-book, yeah. didn't you? What made you think that, apart from the fact that it is actually a very lovely-looking book, and I do like a nice paperback, um, what made you decide to go through the rigours of publishing it as a as a paperback as well? Well, I wrote to lots of um, publishers and they didn't seem to be interested. And uh, but I thought I'd written a good book, and the reviews are good. The reviews are good. You won an award, didn't you? That's right. Yeah. So I'm very pleased about that. And uh, I don't. Know, I think I'm even more pleased that um, the books ended up on the uh, International Baccalaureate um, Diploma in Medieval History, and it sits on the on the recommended reading list between Geoffrey Chaucer and Umberto Eco. Oh, so it's, wow. Yeah, so it's Canterbury Tales, me, and then oh, fabulous. The I Name of the Rose. From... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So I was really pleased when I discovered that. So I thought, well, it's... It, it's my book, and, yes. and books are like children, you know. Yes, they are. Your know kids are wonderful, and, and you know, yeah. and p- if people criticise them, God help them, you know. Mm. But you do kind of find yourself wondering, you know, well, what are they really like in other people's mm. eyes? So I thought, well, I'll find out, but rather than commit myself to a huge expense of mm. payback as well, I'll just send it out as an e-book and see what happened. And a lot of people were really enthusiastic about it, and I thought, oh, well, it's not just me mm. who thinks it's good. You know, it, it is of some merit. So I thought, well, I'll um, I'll do a paperback as well mm. and um, see how that goes down. So it's uh, it came out. It had a, a second print run, mm. and we've nearly got through that. And there's a sequel to this on its way. Yes, um, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, the sequel's on its way, uh, and um, I'm delighted to say I was invited to uh, participate with uh, eight other authors. 
to produce an alternative of 1066. Oh, right. Uh, and it's 1066 upside down. And <laughs> That's a great title. we all change various events in 1066. Mm. So you've got Helen Hollick. Uh, oh, I know Helen Hollick, yes. Right, yes. Helen, Helen's uh, made a contribution. Joanna Courtney, Carol McGrath... Alison, uh, Morton, there's me. There's, there's, there's nine of us all together. Yes. And we all come, there's a science fiction writer, Richard D, and he's, he's you know, got it completely changed. People come down from the future and sort oh, everything out. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so we, we, and we've all got our different takes on it. Um, and uh, so the, the nine stories are, are, are all together and they're all coming out in the autumn. I think, I think the release date is the 1st of September. And that's uh, an ebook. That sounds fascinating. And I did the Battle of London Bridge, which nobody's heard of in 1066. And uh, there's even a book called the uh, 1066, the Year of Three Battles. And you've got Fulford Gate, which is the one that all the, the you know the, the Saxons claim is, is the Forgotten Battle of 1066. Right. And they always talk to each other about the Forgotten Battle, except nobody's forgotten it. They just Say everybody's yes. forgotten it. <laughs> well, then you got <laughs> then the Stamford Bridge, the and, and then there's, there's Hastings. Yeah. But there was also after uh, William defeated Harold, it took him a couple of months to get up to London, and he, he thought he'd just walk into the city. But they met him on the bridge, and there was a big battle there, and he couldn't cross it. The English won, or rather, more accurately, they didn't lose. So William went up river, crossed it to uh, right. Wallingford, and then came back down, and everybody surrendered, and that was that. Mm. But but I have an alternative ending in in my little story. That's the benefit of being a fiction writer, isn't it? Because yeah. I I love writing the non-fiction, but actually I long to get back into fiction and start. Oh. So you can flesh out those facts, can't mm. you, and make them almost your own in mm. a sense. So you've got a sequel. Well, yep. time's rushing on. We I could talk about this for ages. You've got a sequel coming out. You've got another book that you're working with other people. What's your you, you must now have to have got into a proper writing routine, mustn't you, in order to make sure you meet deadlines and all sorts of things? Well, the deadlines are my own. The routine is um, my wife and I have got a company that's basically her company. She's mm. a, a tax consultant and accountant. And I go in and, and help out there. And when I get spare time, I mm. do a bit of editing or, or, you know, tidy things up. And when the kids come home from university in the holidays, they go and work in the office, and I sit at home and, and try and get as much squashed in as I possibly can. Right. So when we're busy, I don't get much written at all. And, and when times are slack and the kids are home mm. from, uh, from, from uni, then uh, I'm stuck to the, to the keyboard. Yeah. So hopefully I can, I can get a lot done this summer before Lucy goes back to Brighton. Oh, right, yes. So you actually need to, you actually need to have this real you know, space mm. in time, not mm. writing a thousand words a day like some mm. people can be disciplined. Um, did you want to tell us, I said you won an award, tell us what the award was, because it it's, a, it's a nice one to have won, isn't it? It's from the Wishing Shelf, and uh, somebody organised it. It's, it's been running about four years now. And they get English language students in England and in Sweden to review books. Yeah. And they read them through and uh, vote on what they like. And it's the, um, the cover, the uh, physical appearance of the book, mm. um, the story, the characters, the plot, um, one or two other things, how interesting it is, and so on and so forth. And then they tot up the marks. And uh, if you're lucky, you get a gold medal. Like I did. That's wonderful. Because I will say, I mean, we've got to draw to a close now, but 
um, I will say it is a lovely looking book it's a terrific cover um, and uh, I'm sure that if you go online if you've got a website and stuff people yeah, can go yeah, on and find yeah. a bit more do you want to give us the web address www.gkholloway.co.uk and that'll take you straight to the website nice and easy and are you on Facebook or anything yes, like I'm that yes on, on Facebook um, as GK Holloway and as Glenn Holloway uh, am I on anything else not that I can think of. Well, that's enough to get people started. <laughs> and, of course, available at all good bookshops. And um, all I can really say now is that we've had 25 minutes that have just flown by. So thank you so much for coming in. And you've chosen a uh, track to end with. Did you want to um, say what it is and why maybe you chose it? Yeah, I real. Uh, I, I've uh, I know my wife for, for a few years and we've just been friends. And uh, I'd gone round to uh, her house with, with a few other friends for a Sunday lunch. And after we had lunch, she put this record on. And um, I just looked at her and I thought, that's the first time I realised that I really fancied her. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I really fancy you. So, and, and this was the record that she put on. Oh, right. When, when I realised I so fancied it's, her. It's magical. Yeah. 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 <laughs> thank you so much for coming in, well, Glenn. Thank you it's for having really me. It's been really interesting. And, and see you in the fortnight. <laughs> Stay real